Open your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 19, the very end of Luke 19. We'll look this morning at verses 45 to 48. Luke 19, verses 45 to 48. You know, there almost nothing is so volatile as people's worship. You want to really store up a hornet, stir up a hornet's nest, mess with people's worship. Stir up some trouble in the holy place. Or simply change something with deep religious tradition. In our day, they don't call it the worship wars for nothing. It uh, happens in many, many churches. Well, things were no different in Jesus' day. So when we read this morning of Jesus attacking the practices of the temple, we should not be surprised when by the end of the passage, the leaders are planning to kill him. This is a very brief account of a very significant and probably familiar event. Uh, Let's read it. Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Then Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Many of you are quite familiar with this uh, story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, You've probably noticed that Luke has very little to say about it. If all we had was his account, we would probably just read past it and not think it was any big deal. But all four gospel writers tell us about this event. There aren't too many things that all four gospel writers tell us about, but this is one of them. So we know many of the details. We know how Jesus made a whip, and he came into the temple and overturned uh, tables. That's, can you imagine people have their things all spread out on the tables, and somebody just comes and upends the table, and the coins sprawl all over the floor. And he gave orders, get those things out of here, and took the whip in his hand, and like a farm boy, drove the, the animals out of the temple. Though Luke may understate the situation, Jesus was furious. So what was going on? What was behind Jesus' holy anger? Well, that brings us to the first of two things I want to say to you this morning. The first is this. God hates expedient religion. God hates expedient religion. In case you've forgotten from your school days, or for you kids who perhaps don't know that word, let me give you a dictionary definition of expedient Expedient means useful for affecting a desired result, suitable for the circumstances, convenient, based on what is of use or advantage rather than what is right or just, guided by self-interest, expedient. That's what Jesus sees going on in the temple in Jerusalem, the law of expediency at work, doing what's convenient, do, do, doing uh, uh, what is of our own, to our own advantage rather than what's right or just. Let me explain. All the market activity in the, in the, in the uh, temple uh, had a purpose. 
when the worshipers came to worship, they were required to bring a sacrificial animal to be sacrificed for the temple. An ex- external, uh, extra-biblical source tells us of 3,000 animals being bought, brought to, uh, for, for the sacrifices at this occasion. Now, now, it wouldn't do for someone to bring an animal all the way from the, wherever they live out in the countryside uh, and, and, and have it be not fit for sacrifice. So the high priest provided inspectors to check out each animal. Oh, but what if uh, after all the work to get your sacrificial lamb to, to Jerusalem, it was found to, be, uh, to have a blemish and to not be acceptable? Uh, then on short notice, you'd have to find another sacrificial lamb. And where would you look? So the priests provided for replacements. Better yet, why not just have a concession there in the temple where you could buy pre-approved lambs and goats and doves? That was exactly the practice the high priest had established. You see, it was convenient. It was useful for effecting the desired result. It was suited for the circumstances. It was expedient. And and then there was the matter of the temple tax. Every worshiper, 20 years old or older, was required to pay a half-shekel temple tax. But the people that came to worship were from all over. Which currency would be used? Well, the high priest, after considering things like whose image was on the currency or on the coin, and how pure the silver was, and who had currency in a half-shekel denomination, decided to accept only the currency of the city of Tyre for the payment of the temple tax. Of course, that meant that everyone from anywhere but Tyre had to exchange their money to have the right currency to pay the temple tax when they came to worship. No problem. The high priest set up such a concession. For a fee, you could change your money right in the temple and have the right thing to offer to the Lord. How convenient. How useful. How suitable for the circumstances. How expedient. But God hates expedient religion. So Jesus came storming into this temple driving out the animals and upending the tables of the money changers, sending the the coins sprawling across the floor. Now Luke, in his account, doesn't tell us much about that, but he gives us a little insight, as do the other gospel writers too, into what Jesus' concern was by giving us two quotations that Jesus made of the Old Testament scriptures when he was doing this. The first one is from Isaiah 56, verse 7. It is written, Jesus said, My house will be a house of prayer. But you see, that's what was wrong. Prayer could not possibly have characterized that temple. All reverence was lost there. Can you imagine walking into the temple to worship, to the sound of the bleating of sheep? And the arguing about exchange rates. And the stench of cattle. And manure on the floor. No. One should walk into worship with some reverence. Punctuated with songs of joy and voices raised in praise. It's not that worship is always silent. Though there's a time for that. But it is always reverent. And God hates expedient religion which sacrifices reverence, prayer, for convenience. 
Perhaps we need to be careful about that ourselves. Sometimes as we gather for worship, the confusion of our visiting with friends and rush of last-minute dashes to church also squelch reverence. Indeed, some of us might scarcely ever have a moment of prayer in our daily life. Not only at church, but at home. But folks, getting everything done is not the whole goal. God calls us to worship in reverence, to stand in awe in his presence, to tremble before his holiness, to to humbly lay our petitions before him. He says, be still and know I am God. Oh, but it was not just a reverent prayer that was lost. There's another thing that you, you don't know immediately unless you go back and look at that passage in Isaiah 56. The worship of the Gentiles was being sacrificed. Luke abbreviates the quote from Isaiah, but Mark records it in its, it records the whole thing in his account. Jesus said, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's the point of that passage in Isaiah 56. God's desire that the Gentiles, the, na- the nations of the world come and worship him. But that's what was being lost in the practice of the temple. When all this market was set up, the animal concessions and the money changers, it was set up in the court of the Gentiles. You see, a Gentile could never go into the temple area proper, but God had provided that those Gentiles who wanted to worship the true God could come into a courtyard specifically set apart for them. They too could worship Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Israel. But the law of expediency found that the convenience of the Jews and the profits to the leaders from these concessions was more important than some Gentile worshiping. And so their courtyard was commandeered and made a marketplace. All for the good of the temple life, of course. Oh, how God hates the religion of expediency that sacrifices the nobodies of his kingdom for those who think they're somebody. Might that ever happen to us? Might we ever use resources that God gave us to spread the gospel for our own convenience instead? Might the pursuit of our own comfort cause us to sacrifice the faith of others? William Barclay pointedly challenges us. He writes, is there anything in our church life, a snobbishness, an exclusiveness, a coldness, a lack of welcome, a tendency to make the congregation into a closed club, an arrogance, a fastidiousness, which keeps the seeking stranger out. Let us remember the wrath of Jesus against those who made it difficult and even impossible for the seeking stranger to make contact with God. Oh, but there was even more that Jesus was indignant about than the things suggested by the quote from Isaiah. There's also a quote here from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jesus says, You have made my house a den of robbers. Jesus was quoting from Isaiah's famous temple sermon. On that occasion, uh, uh, Jeremiah had rebuked the people 
of Jerusalem for thinking that they could just live any way they pleased, that they could just do whatever they wanted, that they could live with all kinds of wickedness and all kinds of indiscretions as long as they maintained the, the formal structure of the temple, that the temple was like a rabbit's foot among us. We have the temple. We're okay. God will take care of us because he certainly wouldn't destroy his temple. And Jeremiah predicted that the destruction was exactly what would happen, and indeed, it did. Now, Jesus seems that same kind of, uh, of sinful behavior, hypocrisy, lack of concern for justice, lack of concern for truth, covered by the guise of order in the temple worship. Instead of the temple activity focusing on worshiping God, on repentance and faith and seeking the Lord, it had come to focus on the procedures, the forms. Gone was the commitment of Nehemiah's day that we read this morning. We will not forsake the house of the Lord. We will do anything necessary to come and worship. Now the emphasis on, was on whether you had the right kind of money in, whether you had an approved animal to sacrifice Compare that with the old way, a very personal practice of going out into your own flock and finding your very best lamb, unblemished lamb, your prize. Take it to the fair and win a blue ribbon lamb and bring it in your arms and travel to the city of Jerusalem, protecting it from everything along the way and then taking it into the temple to have it sacrificed because it belongs to our God. No more. Empty forms, expedient religion. But God hates that expedient religion, which changes the focus of worship from loving and glorifying God to the maintenance of proper procedures and the corruption that inevitably goes with temple business. I wish I could say that such things never happen nowadays in the church. But how often church business eats up worshiping God? How often following the familiar order of worship substitutes for lovingly addressing our Lord in our songs and prayers? How often saying some prescribed words which someone has said constitutes a profession of faith Passes for really declaring yourself to be a Christian and, and unashamedly telling everyone what, Christ, what Jesus has done for us. How often putting a few dollars in the plate eases our sense of responsibility to care for the hurting and serve the Lord with every resource he's put in our hands. How often dragging our children to church for an hour or so replaces the hard, costly discipleship of training them to know and serve the Savior. You see, God hates that, that religion of convenience over substance, whether he finds it in the temple worship in Jerusalem or in Wiser Lake Chapel. And so showing himself to be the promised Messiah, Jesus does exactly what the prophet Malachi had said would happen. 
Suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come into this temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. In other words, Jesus coming to cleanse the temple was a foreshadowing of the day of his wrath yet to come when he will cast out of his presence forever all this religion of expediency. Then there's a second truth for us to consider. A wonderful truth. We meet God in Jesus not in a temple. We meet God in Jesus, not in a temple. In one sense, Luke's account here is just an abbreviated form of the other Gospels. But if we look closely, we see that Luke has a very distinct emphasis. Luke, more than any of the other of the Gospel writers, has much to say about the temple. So in his account of the life of Jesus, the temple is always there. According to Luke, it was in the holy place of the temple that the angel Gabriel appeared to Zechariah the priest and foretold the birth of the, of the forerunner of the Messiah. It was in the temple courts that the aged Simeon announced that in the baby Jesus, he had seen the coming of the salvation of God. It was in the temple that Jesus, as a boy of 12, first expressed some messianic consciousness. It was on the highest pinnacle of the temple that Jesus was tempted by the the devil and resisted. And in Luke's account, in his second volume, the book of Acts, it was in the temple courts that the early church, the, the believers after the day of Pentecost, met every day to worship and learn and devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine and prayers and fellowship. And later in the book of Acts, it was in the temple that Paul prayed and was told to take the gospel to the, to the Gentiles. Throughout the whole gospel of Luke and throughout the book of Acts, Luke is concerned for us to see the connection between the Lord Jesus and the temple. And that's exactly what we see in our text this morning. Jesus drove the merchandisers out of the temple. But then what did he do? Well, according to verse 7, he began to teach in the temple every day. In fact, in the next couple of chapters, I can find at least six times where Jesus is spoken of as teaching in the temple. Jesus virtually took possession of the temple as his school. As if it belonged to him. Because it did. Kent Hughes writes, His temporary appropriation of the temple and exposition from within the temple's walls were one vast messianic act. His use of the temple was the last and ultimate glory of the temple. And even in those days, it became clear That people would meet God in Jesus, not just in the temple.
But it would not be long before Jesus was ejected from the temple. Indeed, when he was arrested, interestingly, it was the temple guard that arrested him. And one of the great charges against him was that he said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Which, of course, that was not exactly what Jesus had said, but what he did say was even more inflammatory, had they known. He said that he was the temple and that if he were destroyed, he would rise the third day. All of which explains Luke's constant focus on the temple in the life of Christ. For Jesus has become the temple of God. He's the one who literally tabernacled among us and we saw his glory. The glory in the Old Testament which is only seen in the temple. He is the one who is the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in a body. In fact, in Revelation 21, we read that in the new Jerusalem, there'll be no temple. Because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. You see, just as the Sabbath has changed from a day to a person, so the temple has changed from a place, a a building of stone in Jerusalem, to a person, the risen, exalted Christ. He came not only to purify the temple, but to make that worship obsolete in favor of a better worship, just like he had promised to the Samaritan woman at the well, if you recall. In his commentary, Pastor Bruce Milnes explains, Jesus is claiming nothing less than the reconstituting of the entire worship of God's people around his own person and mission. The temple will pass into oblivion, not only because it is physically destroyed, but because it is spiritually obsolete. Jesus' body, offered up in sacrifice and raised up in power, will be the new temple where God and humanity, creator and creature, meet face to face. In other words, we now meet God in Jesus, not in a temple. Now you may be saying, that's all very theological. You lost me. What difference does it make to me? Well, it makes all kinds of difference. For example, no longer do we need to scurry around looking for the temple or cathedral or church where God is truly present. Is it some ancient site? Do we need to make a a pilgrimage to the Holy Land? Or is it some modern architectural wonder, some glass cathedral? God is present in Jesus. He is in the Father. The Father is in Him. If by faith we've come into relationship with the risen Jesus, who by His Spirit is present everywhere, we can address Him and know His presence and worship Him and walk with Him wherever we may be. We meet God in Jesus, not in a temple. It means that no longer do we need a priest to be a go-between between us and God. Jesus himself has become the mediator that we need. He died to satisfy God's judgment on our sin, and he lives to bring us into fellowship with the Father. So any day of the week, wherever we may be, we meet God in Jesus, not in a temple. 
It means that no longer do we need to bring a sacrificial lamb for a priest to kill, to cover up our wretched sin before God so that he might forgive us and hear our prayers. Oh no, Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God that has suffered and died once for all as an atonement for our sins. Those who have no hope but entrust themselves to him are perfectly forgiven because of Jesus' suffering and death. So wherever we are, whatever the situation, in Jesus we are clean, accepted before God. We meet God in Jesus, not in a temple. And we don't have to wait for a feast day or a holy day or even a Sabbath day to meet God again. Jesus is our resting place. Day in and day out we walk with him. We rest on what he has done in our place. And celebrate this new relationship that we have as the children of God. Every day is a Sabbath day. For we meet God in Jesus. Not in the temple. I'm reminded of a story of a simple man we'll call him Jim, who committed himself to pray every day during his lunch hour. So every day he hustled out of work and he walked as fast as he could several blocks to get to a church. And as he went into the church and kneeled down, he realized he barely had enough time to get back to work. And so he would simply pray, Lord, it's Jim again. And then he would hustle back and hike back to work in order to be back to work on time. What a nice story. What commitment. What diligence. What devotion. What absolute foolishness. Jim, go find a quiet place in the storeroom or out under a tree. And in the name of Jesus, come to the Father who stands ready to listen to those whom his Son brings. We meet God in Jesus. Not in a temple. Not in a church building. So this morning I challenge you, don't turn this building into a temple. It's not. Jesus is the true temple, and the only visible manifestation of that on this earth is the company of the people who know him as they gather. Oh, he commands us to be careful not to neglect that gathering. And he promises to be with us when we gather in his name. But that is just as true when we gather in a barn, or when we gather in someone's living room, or when we gather out under under a tree somewhere, as it is when we gather in this building. We meet God not in a temple but in Jesus who is alive and dwelling in the midst of his people well at the end of our text verse 48 there's a great division some of the people not just the chief priests and the teachers of the law but also now some key leaders of the people are trying to kill Jesus And other people are hanging on every word he says. And you see, that's how it will always be. For ultimately, there's no middle ground. Jesus challenged not the openly wicked sinners that we would expect him to challenge. He he challenges the religious people. Those committed to all the forms and the procedures of expedient religion. The division is not between the wicked and the righteous, but between those trusting themselves and their ability to save themselves and those often public sinners who have no hope but trust and follow Jesus. And which are you? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father.
we're just like the Jews of Jesus' day. We get so caught up in our worship procedures and in our traditions. And our hearts can grow very cold and hard. And in fact, you can matter a lot less to us than just being here and putting a good face on and doing the right things. So much so that we wonder, Lord, if uh, Jesus walked in today, would he delight in our worship? Or would he be overturning things and commanding us to get out of here? May it never be that we buy into the worship of convenience, the procedures that are easy for us, that fit our desires, rather than really seeking to know Jesus and to worship you in his name. Only you, Lord, can keep our hearts pure. Only you can restore our souls. Only you can lead us forth in the paths of righteousness. We ask you to do so. In the Savior's name, amen.